Good morning, everybody. It is that time, 9.30, actually 9.31 now. So, yep, I see, see a few more ladies coming in, so we'll give them just a second. Uh, Peter did provide a little bit of scratch paper out there if you would like to take notes. <laughs> and uh, it's nice to see you this morning. We, uh, as somebody said coming in, we have some blustery, wintry weather today. So now we're getting winter finally, right? Hopefully you like that. <laughs> it definitely makes us long for spring though, right? Spring, spring sounds so good. But uh, so we, uh, I'm, I'm in kind of somewhat casual attire today because we are going to move my books to my office at Concordia. And uh, so that will be fun. So <clears throat> I think my count was 54 boxes of books. Yeah, boxes of books. And you know, this is standard for pastors, right? We get crazy and overly zealous. And then, you know, then when you get to my stage in the ministry, you know, your wife looks at you and says, we're selling books, right? <laughs> that's not that's that's not a happy happy conversation but um at any rate that's right that's right we we get young seminarians to take them to the seminary when we get old and we're retired and they drop them off you know <laughs> although books are getting hard to find like it's getting harder to find good old books you know they're getting rare and uh, they're getting expensive. The prices are, you know, they, they run the prices up, especially for research type stuff. So I don't know, what are you gonna do? Yeah, but uh, at any rate, it's good to be with you today. So um, next Friday when we meet, I will have to leave at 10.15. We'll have to end at 10.15 because I have the, the wonderful opportunity to represent President Dawn uh, and do a welcome and a prayer for um, the ILC, which will be here. Uh, so they're going to be going from here to there and then back to here, I think. So, <laughs> but, uh, so at any rate, but, so we'll, we'll still have our class, but I'll have to just break, cut it off a little early next week. But uh, we are in Jonah, and uh, Jonah chapter 1, and we basically went through uh, a little bit of the background and what was going on and we really made it only to like verse four four or five there there is you know when you think about the book of Jonah it's a short book but there is so much in it and one of the beautiful things about Jonah is it is so applicable for our life of faith today and just some of the different things we deal with and go through so we will talk about that a little bit today if you take a look at verse 4 it says but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up then the mariners were afraid and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. 
But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. And then it says in verse 6, So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us that, so that we may not perish. So let's just stop right there and kind of work through these few verses. So as I said last week, there is this rising language and going down language that is, you know, they have, it has this spiritual connotation to it. And Jonah is trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. And so he gets on this ship and what we see in verse 4 is God acts. God does not remain absent, but he, he does things. And verse 4 is like the flood, but it is worse. In the Greek text, it literally means God hurls the wind as if it were a weapon. And he wants Jonah to learn a few things, but in this chapter, you have as a central piece the mariners. And the fact that the mariners are praying to their gods. So you have, it's happen chance, it seems, right? So Jonah has his own problems. And the focus is on Nineveh. Jonah wants to get away from Nineveh, so he boards a ship. And now all of a sudden you have these, these mariners that worship different gods, and now they become the focal point of chapter 1. And it says in verse 5 that the sailors feared. And yes, I just find it odd that Jonah's fast asleep on the boat when he's in fact at odds with his God, his <laughs> Lord, and he's like sleeping. No anxiety there. Yeah, yeah. And you know what it even says in the Greek text? It even says he's snoring. <laughs> so I mean, this guy is, he is just sawing logs. He's having the sleep of his life. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that it? I mean, to be like Jonah, right? To, to be so confident in, you know, going away from the Lord. Oh my goodness, right? But he, so he's, he, yeah. So you have these, this contrast where up on deck, these mariners or sailors that are well-trained, they have a lot of experience, they've seen a lot of storms, but this one really frightens them. To the point, Jonah is in the belly of the boat. And what, one of the things that we see in this text that's a, a bit hidden or maybe not as obvious is that God's mercy, almost by chance, uh, the knowledge of the true God comes to the sailors. I mean, they were, they, they were none the wiser. They were just going about life. And this is a great example of the church's mission, that often we just 
are who we are and we just live the life that the Lord has given us. And it is precisely in our lives as Christians, living out our lives, going about our business, that the Lord often uses us and we may not even detect that. And that's a comfort because, you know, so often we think in the church, and I mean, there's a place to be active and, you know, focused uh, on the mission of the church. But sometimes Christians think that if we're not doing that all the time, then there's something wrong with us. But it's not that way. The Lord uses us even when we aren't thinking about it. And so this is happening a little bit in this text. And what we see in this text is similar to what we see in the Gospels, where Jesus is going about his business and then people just show up right in front of him. You know, he's, he's on his way, you know, to, to heal a child and then, uh, you know, a woman with a, a, a flow of blood shows up and then something else happens. And, you know, Jonah really is very much a Christ-like figure in the Old Testament. So the sailors fear, and this will come up again if, if we jump ahead a little bit. In chapter 4, verse 11, where it says, Now also many nations have gathered against you who say, Let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. So the Gentile nations will look upon Zion. And that is at work in this text. You know, you, you probably remember me doing this before where in the Old Testament, Mount Zion or the temple would be the focal point and the nations would draw in. This is centripetal, what, what they would call centripetal mission. And, you know, here's Zion and the nations. And then when you get to the New Testament, it's different. It becomes centrifugal where it goes out. But the people of the world, the Gentile nations, would see how God would bless his people, and then that would be appealing and draw them in. And that is at work in this text. So when we think about storms, there are storms in the scriptures. And I don't remember if we looked at this last week or not, but we could look at it again. Psalm 107 has some great language in this regard with storms. So it'd be Psalm 107, 23 to 27. Psalm 107, 23 to 27. And it says, those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. 
their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. And that is very much going on in this text in Jonah. Similarly, Isaiah recounts Noah's flood in Isaiah chapter 24, verses 18 and 19. But what we see in this particular text in Jonah chapter 1 uh, comes along in verse 7. So if we go back to Jonah 1, verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot, the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. So we see where mammon, right, goods and things of this life fall when death is near in this text. Because what they will do is they will throw things overboard that were valuable, which is coming in the text. And it says to lighten the, the load. Um, and the, words, the word for lighten the load suggests that the things that they throw overboard have become light or of little consequence. It's no longer valuable, which I mentioned last week. Can you imagine being these sailors? Those goods don't belong to those sailors. They belong to somebody else. So they're going to be in big trouble if they come to port <laughs> without goods. I mean, that's, that's big trouble especially in the ancient world. And so you have all this chaos on the deck, okay? So, you know, you think about this in terms of church and world. So you can kind of think about this. Up on deck, that's the world. And they're in chaos. They're frantic. And as I mentioned last week, and I did check this uh, to make sure I was correct on this. So when it says in the Greek that the sailors cry out to their gods, it is bellow. And that is the same word that's used when Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he bellows it. And so this kind of bellowing is like a frantic, empty cry that will have no, no response. It goes out and just dissolves into the wind. And that's part of Christ's suffering, right? That as he suffers, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is suffering hell on the cross in our place, which is the absence of God's loving presence. 
And so you think then to the sailors on the ship, on deck, and they're bellowing out to their gods, and it's like life for them where they cry out to their gods and it goes out into the wind and it dissolves and disappears and there's no answer. So that's the chaos up on deck and that's the world. Jonah, even in his uh, disobedience to the Lord, goes down and is asleep and he's at peace in a sense, which is kind of weird, like you pointed out, that's very strange. And, you know, on the one hand, you might say, all right, well, that confidence in the midst of a storm is how Christians are. But then you add the complexity to the spiritual condition of Jonah. Because the spiritual condition of Jonah is that he's sleeping and snoring and this word for sleeping is used in the New Testament for death. Um, go to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And so you can kind of, you know, you think about all of the complexities of Jonah's situation and how does the Lord regard him and you know, what's his status, right? <laughs> what is going on with him spiritually? Well, he is a man of faith because he's running because he knows God will, will save those no good, you know, Ninevites. But if you look at this text, Ephesians 5, verse 14 and 15, therefore he says... Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. <clears throat> and there are some other passages too. Um, there's... Matthew 8, 24, 9, 24, 13, 25. These all use the word uh, for sleeping, which is kind of like death. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, and uh, chapter 5, verses 6, 7, and 10. And you, what you have even here with Jonah... If you look at the verse, so it'd be verse, so back to Jonah 1, verse 6. What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. So, what you have here is death and resurrection language for Jonah. What's striking to me is it's the captain, the captain of the ship, who is just like everybody else up on deck. But he's the one, now this is the irony, he's the one that the Lord is using to recall the things of, 
of the Lord. Isn't that ironic? You just never think about it like that. But the Lord uses this guy to arouse Jonah. Yes? It almost feels like Jonah's taking God's grace for granted a little bit. I mean, the fact that he can be so calm and falling asleep. And then when they say, well, what should we do to calm the seas? And he's like, just, just throw me in. It, it, he doesn't seem distressed. I mean, it was never into the text. The sailors seem more distressed. They're kind of like, well, no, no, we couldn't do that. That sounds awful. They end up doing it because they get desperate. Yeah. Yeah. It's like he has complete confidence that kind of like Nineveh, that God will save him, like he'll save <laughs> Yeah. And then he later says, like, I'm in, dis- in the distress, I call the Lord. But he didn't ever see him in distress. Mm-mm. Is there something, some fault in him being just kind of taking for granted God's mercy? Like, oh, I'll go run away, but he'll find a way to get me back, and I'll go run in the ocean, but he'll save me. Yeah. Or does he not care that he dies? Uh, you know, that's a very good question. Yeah. He's so at odds with the Lord. He's almost hopeless. And go ahead, throw me in. I don't care. Yeah, maybe is he hopeless or is he confident? Yeah. Well, you do see this in the prophets. Yeah, go ahead. He looks like him sleeping so soundly in third beginning of class. I said, well, maybe he's depressed. He's like, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to go sleep. Yeah. 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 Right. Does anybody. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, you know, you don't have to call yourself out on this, but when you get super stressed, who sleeps? Who's like, all right, I'm, I'm done, I'm out. See, I can't sleep. If I'm stressed, I'm like, my eyes are like quarters. I'm like. I'm depressed. You sleep too. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. But, you know, it's true, like the prophets, oftentimes, like, you know, Job, he's despairing of his life, you know. And in that case, his wife says, go ahead and die already. (laughs) But, you know, Elijah too, though, you know, in his despair, he's like, all right, that's it, you know. Um, You know, that, and that's the irony. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I was thinking that these sailors have so many gods. Mm-hmm. That Jonah brings up another one, and it's and I think initially it's just well, it's just another god that they add to their list of gods. Right. And not until later do they, you know, yeah, perhaps believe. But I, I mean, I, do they just throw him in with all the rest of the, you know, our <laughs> and with all the rest of his the false gods that they believed? In? Well, it's interesting because you're you know you're you're drawing us into the the next part, which is good, um, you know. When he says, um, so in verse 6 in the Greek, uh, when the captain says, rise up and call upon your God, um, the, the Greek word is different than the word for bellow that's being used for the sailors. This word is epikalu, to call upon in Greek. And it means to call upon a name. So it, the, the captain is saying, call upon the name of your God, which is implicitly suggesting that Jonah's God is different than all the gods that are being bellowed upon up on deck. It, 
think about the incarnational aspect, right? We, th- we talk about Jesus and the incarnation and coming in the flesh and coming down to earth, right? Being present. So, you know, think about that word epikalu, to call upon. It implies that this God has a place and takes up space and comes into the midst of the people and the world. So it implies a bit of sort of an incarnational sort of presence. God is present. He's not absent like the gods who are being bellowed upon up on deck. I mean, it's very striking, the difference in the text. And so then they cast lots. And, you know, as they cast lots, that reminds us of something, right? I mean, that's casting lots for the garments of the Lord, right? Yeah, that's, that's where you're at wit's end and you, you're just, you're looking to an outside source to figure it out. Jonah being in the belly of the ship is in a sense in darkness. And the captain of the ship is trying to get Jonah to rise up and pray. And, you know, that's important for us too. You know, you think about the Christian journey as we, as we continue on in the faith. And so often that's what we should do, right? Encourage one another to rise up and pray. Um, when things are happening in life, trouble is near, a Christian is in anguish, rise up and pray. And there is a lot to this watchfulness and prayer. Um, But let me go back to the, the word call upon. Go to Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10. So back to this language of calling upon Jonah's God. Let's look, we'll start, so at Philippians 2, starting at verse 5, and it reads in English, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, there it is, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's the fruition of all this calling upon a name in other parts of the scriptures. And arising and and praying is something Jesus brings up. So you have this captain 
urging a man of God to rise up and pray. And we often need that too. Uh, go to Luke twenty-two forty-six. And again, you know, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to call yourself out on this, but I'll say sometimes it's hard to pray. You know, sometimes uh, things are of such in life that you can't find the words, or maybe you just sort of feel washed out and you know, weak, and prayer is difficult. And, you know, it is precisely in these times where the Lord's Prayer is a great, is a great thing to go to. You know, if, you're, if you struggle to pray and, you know, you're beside yourself and you're struggling with things and, you, you know, you're just, you feel weak or you can't come up with the words, go right to the Lord's Prayer. Go right to the liturgy and the divine service. But in Luke 22, verse 46, look at this. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. It's the same language as in Jonah. It's the same word for sleep, same word uh, for rise. Yep, same word for rise. Aha. Yes. So maybe that is what's going on with Jonah. Maybe he's filled with sorrow and anguish and he can only sleep. To be able to sleep in a storm like that, that's really something. So they began, so in verse, so back to Jonah, they began to speak to one another, one another as neighbors up on deck. And it even says in the Greek, and he spoke each to his neighbor. So you already start to see, and sailors, I mean, what, you know, especially in the ancient world, what were sailors like? Were they distinguished and drinking tea and, you know, talking about poetry and... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, rough and tumble crowd, right? So, you know, there's, there is something spiritual going on up on deck. There is something happening in terms of faith and the lives of these sailors because they're not the kind of people that care about their neighbors. You know, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world up there on deck, right? How, how often do you hear of in the ancient world and in, in old literature, you know, mutiny on the ship, right? Let's throw the captain overboard, <laughs> right? This is the kind of people you're dealing with. And now it mentions that they're all talking to each his neighbor. That's spiritual language. That's Moses language. So you're already starting to see 
the conversion of the sailors. So that's one of the things that's happening in this text. And they just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So, or the right place at the right time, right? <laughs> That'd be the better way to say it. The right place at the right time. And so, a couple things. Go to Isaiah 41, verse 6. So this sounds like the guy is up on deck. Isaiah 41, verse 6. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, be of good courage. This is the... Uh, yeah, and if you back up and look at verse 5, the coastlands saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, be of good courage. So everyone. So it's this whole thing of the nations draw near to God and they give regard to their neighbor. And then go to Proverbs 27.10. Proverbs 27.10. Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend nor go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. And then one more text, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 10. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. So, a little bit of peace. So what you're seeing here in this language of each started saying to his neighbor, what you see here is a little bit of community. It's not just me against them, but now there's a neighborliness that is starting to sprout up on deck. And it's because of trouble. And, you know, I mentioned this last week, but, you know, there were th three things Luther said that make a theologian, oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, study, and suffering. And, you know, nobody likes the suffering part, but it is precisely in those moments of struggle where the Lord does so much work. And so we... We certainly don't need to be like welcoming it, but if it comes, we recognize what it is. You know, you recognize what it's for. And I think what's important about that is it's good to know that the Lord teaches us through suffering so that we don't despair and say, like the, like the guys up on deck, you know, bellowing for a God who won't hear. We, we, don't, we don't feel like, the Lord doesn't hear us, the Lord doesn't love us, the Lord doesn't care. He, in fact, does care very much, and He will take care of you, and He will see you through whatever struggle you're going through, and you will be a little different. You will grow in wisdom. Uh, you will have more of a gravitas, you know, a kind of a grounding and a basis. 
Yes. I think that suffering also gives us more tools with which we can help others who suffer in that same way. I can't relate maybe to someone who's, you know, whatever the scenario is, but if it's something that I myself have suffered, mm -hmm. that is a huge gift to me to share that with someone else, to help someone else. It is. It is. And um, Paul talks about that as he writes to the Corinthians, um, that with the suffering which we have received, we will be able, and the comfort which we received, we will be able to then comfort others who are in, in similar trials. So that's, very, that's a very good point. So this word for neighbor is the key term in the Torah, the books of Moses, to indicate those who are bound together in the bonds of community. And so there are a couple, couple verses you can jot down. Uh, Leviticus 19.18 and Exodus 20.16. And you don't have to turn to these, but um, let, me, let me pull one out here. Let me go to Leviticus 19.18 and see what it says. So this one says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So you have Torah language ruminating amongst these pagan sailors all of a sudden. And it's, this suggests something, that our neighbor is, our neighbors are everyone in the same storm. So think about that. So you think about the life that we live and you know the community we live in and the people around us and we are all dealing with similar things. And it's so important because, you know, you can just be going to, you know, go, going to the grocery store and, you know, running into people who are frustrated and in a hurry and frustrated with you because you're in their way. And then your natural response is to get frustrated back and, but, you know, if we can all kind of stop and think, we're all living in the same soup, you know? And it's a crazy soup, you know? And there's, it's spicy and there's a lot going on and we're all living it. And sometimes I think part of this, this holy neighborliness is to stop and think about what our... What am I going through and what are these people around me going through? And that often helps us then to be more merciful and forgiving to those around us. And boy, that is so important, right? I mean, I've mentioned this many times, but you know how often it's, it's almost like, you know, that whole thing, pay it forward. If you do something nice for someone, that has a good effect and it spreads, right? Same thing negatively, right? 
if we pay something forward in a negative way, it just spreads like wildfire and then pretty soon everybody's upset. So there's a lot going on there. So they're up there on deck casting lots and it puts the responsibility out of their hands. They don't want to deal with this. Now, lots are cast over the scapegoats in Leviticus also. So now remember this, I, I know you know this, but, but I'll refresh your memory. Remember in Leviticus where you have the atonement, the, the sacrifice, and you have the two goats and they cast lots. So what they're gonna do is they have two tags and they're gonna affix a tag around the neck of each goat and on one tag they're gonna write on it for Yahweh and then on the other tag they're gonna write for Azazel. And then they cast lots to see which one goes in which direction. Now, the one for, that has the tag for Yahweh is the one that sheds its blood for the sins of the people. But the one for Azazel, which we think for Azazel, it's old language, we think for Azazel means uh, for the fallen angel of God. Okay? What do they do with that one? But they give it a swift kick in the rear end and it takes off and it goes outside the city and goes out into the wilderness and then stops and says, I think I'm gonna chew on some grass here for a while until a predator comes and goes, boom, right? What's Jonah? They are casting lots to figure out who's responsible. And what happens? How do they think that that's... How do they what? How do they think that that's going to tell by casting lots? How, how does that make someone responsible? That is a great mystery. I mean, it's like, you know, costing a coin, okay? Yep. Responsible. Yep. And, but, yeah, they, you know, they, they, they had a strong belief that the way it lands is the way it lands. Drawing <laughs> the short straw, right? Yeah, drawing the short straw, that's right. And so, how did... So, yeah. So the lot fell on Jonah, which, as I said last week, the name Jonah in Hebrew means dove, so there's a lot of irony here. But... The lot falls on Jonah, and what do they say? Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And then what does he say? He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So... Jonah, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I'm a Hebrew. But what he doesn't say is, 
I'm a prophet, right? So in a sense, he avoids the question because in those days, for one to say that he was a Hebrew was a general designation that suggested a traveling foreigner. He's just on the, he's, he's just like, I'm on, the, I'm on the road, I fear God, and. If he doesn't know how to identify himself as a prophet too, because he's truly he's kind of given that up. Yeah, it kind of seems like that, right? Like he's given it up, so he's not going to own it, right? I'm not going to do the prophet thing, yes. Um, but later in verse 10, he says, for the men knew that he was linked with the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Hmm. Let's look at that. Yeah, let's. That means he disclosed, you know, my God told me to go this way and go that way. Yeah. Wow, so yeah, it does give us a little bit of commentary, right? That, that he, he told them. What is interesting about this, Jonah names God, which is amazing. And so he does give a clear confession of faith. Um, it's a powerful verse. In, well, so here, okay, so here's how it reads in Greek. I guess I should look at the, I guess I should look at the Greek. The Greek says, I am a servant of the Lord and the Lord God of, and I worship the Lord God of heaven and earth. Yeah. Who made the sea and the dry land. So he is definitely connecting the Lord with his acts as well as the God who created heaven and earth. And the designation God of heaven was, was used by the Jews in the Babylonian exile and afterward <clears throat> to describe their God in discussions to Gentiles. And <clears throat> there's a bunch of verses that show this. Like one would be 2 Chronicles 36.23, um, Ezra. There, Ezra brings, in the book of Ezra, he he, mentioned, he uses this language several times. Um, in chapter 1, verse 2, in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and also into chapter 7, Nehemiah uses it. And the God of heaven is a title of majesty. So go to Isaiah 40, verses 22 and 23. Isaiah 40, 22 and 23. So this chapter is, is God's people are comforted. So the whole chapter is, is sort of, you know, it's, it's that popular, that well-known chapter that we use in the penitential season. I think Lent, right? And comfort, comfort my people, says our God in verse one, but in verse 21 and following, it says, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth 
useless. So, you know, you have this language of creator and creation and that he is in charge of all things, which says that he is a God who acts, right? He is not a God who is like those, you know, those false gods up on deck that are being bellowed upon. He is one who is present and, and goes into action, which we see with him hurling like a weapon the storm. So Jonah mentions fear when he, when he talks about it. And this includes awe and reverence and worship. In the Old Testament, fear is synonymous with faith. You know, you, we often see faith, it's faith in the New Testament. Often fear is used almost as a synonym in the Old Testament. And there are, you know, Proverbs 9, verse 10, and Psalm 33, 6 through 8, which speak to this. And in verse 10, so back to Jonah 1, verse 10, it, as it says, the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us, for the sea was growing more tempestuous. So they were losing their options. Their options of finding a different way were running out. And what's interesting in verse 10 is this word for people is different than the one that's used in verse eight for them. Um, this word in, the one in verse eight means ethnicity. They're ethnically diverse. But in verse 10, it's men. So the word in verse eight used for the, for the sailors is one that's used for an ethnically diverse people. So they're all different, right? But then in verse 10, they're all coming under the same term. They're people. They're humans. So while they may be eth ethnically diverse, they are also, they are in the Lord one, one people. Human being to a human being. Equality. And that's a beautiful thing for the church, right? That we are all one. So again, there's some, some churchly language implied here in this text. And this, this word that's used in verse 10 for like men or people is the same word used for the people of Nineveh in chapter three, verse five. So what God, so here's the thing. God sees us as we, as he created us, right? And, you know, he sees the Ninevites not as a foreign nation, but he sees them as a part of his creation that's worth saving. And so that's why that word for men or persons 
is used for the Ninevites in chapter 3. That's also why it's used for the sailors up on deck in verse 10. Because the Lord draws us all together. And so note the difference from verse 5, great, great wind, to now great fear. And then this will lead us eventually to verse 16, to the great fear of the Lord. So the sailors question, what have you done? It's an accusation of guilt. You know, what have you done to cause this? And this isn't the first time this language has come up. The Lord uses it in Genesis 3.13 for Adam and Eve. What have you done? You see? It's used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. In Genesis 29.25 and 31.26. It's used in... Judges 15, 11. Let's see here what that says. Judges 15, 11. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this that you have done to us? And then first. Uh, 1 Samuel 13, 11. Let's see what that says. That says, let's see. This is Saul's unlawful sacrifice. So it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering. Saul presents the burnt offering. Samuel the prophet came, and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? So it's, it's one of these things of, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> what have you done? Oh, no. Now watch out, right? So the sailors put it all together. Jonah's description of his God and the name of God and the great wind says it all. The sea is getting worse. It's prompting the sailors to ask or seek the word of God from Jonah, which is driving them to faith. And we should maybe stop there because there's a lot to talk about from there to the end of the chapter, okay? So we'll put a pause on this between the sailors and Jonah and pick it up next week, okay? All right, let's go ahead and close with the collect for this week. Let us pray. O Lord God Almighty, because you have always supplied your servants with the several gifts which come from your Holy Spirit alone, leave also us not destitute of your manifold gifts, nor of grace to use them always to your honor and glory, and the good of others. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen.